Welcome to Radical Remembering with psychologists Dr. Narissa and Dr. Buki. This is a weekly conversation where we explore the ways we've internalized oppression and consider what it really means to be liberated. Each episode will leave you with intimate knowledge of the liberation process, sprinkle a little healing magic, and leave you with wisdom for your journey. What's up, y'all? Welcome back. Today, our topic is degemification and liberation. Y'all probably remember me mentioning and referencing that word um, at our last conversation. So we're going to unpack that word a little bit, and then we're going to get into liberation and start breaking that down and just starting all the goodness with it. What would you add, Narissa? No, nothing else to add. I'm just curious to, to pick up where we left off. What is degemification? And I, I guess it starts with the identification of what gemification is. Yep. So let me start y'all by saying gemification is, is, I mean, the term, the word gem, really it stands for good, effective mainstream minority. And it is a word that Dr. Kenneth Hardy came up with. And it's critical that we, we a, give credit to, to the brilliance of, of Dr. Hardy because he just is amazing. But essentially when Dr. The, like the, the first thing that's important for us is when we talk about gemification or degemification, the first thing we want to break down is what it means to be a gem. And so one of the things that like people have been talking about, scholars, scholars are, have been naming, but what Dr. Hardy has done is like put in a beautiful package so it's easy for us to really understand and digest is this idea of like the ways in which institutions, all of the different institutions that we're engaged with, um, apply what Dr. Hardy says, subtle and persistent pressures, right? To people of color to fit into the prevailing racial norms of a setting, usually predominantly white institutions, right? So essentially in my mind, it's essentially, it's the process through which because of white supremacy and white supremacy ideology, right? It is the process through which POCs are expected and reinforced and coerced into relinquishing who they are racially and therefore culturally in order to be mainstream, right? And when I say mainstream, it's essentially being like white-like, near white, anything but POC identified. And, you know, Nerissa, when I've heard you talk about it, you use the word enforced assimilation. It's the exact same thing as what we're talking about that, right? And so, Part of the way I just think about it is my, my just like cut to the chase way of saying it. And y'all probably like cut to the chase, <laughs> Boogie Rally cuts to the chase with all the different words I have. But the gist is like, is the whitewashing of like POCs. And that happens through our engagement and through engagement with institutions. And it is without our awareness and it perpetuates our own internalization of like showing up at, like with whiteness and culture in terms of our consciousness, it's essentially the process through which we start to internalize white supremacy and ideology and are acting it out and living by those rules and operating with those rules as the, like the primary way and lens through which we should be doing all things, all right? And so, you know, for folks who are newer to the conversation and just really starting at the beginning of your conversation, whenever we're talking about, actually, let me ask you the nurse, uh, nurse let me bring you in here. When we talk about white supremacy, can you break down for the audience, when we talk about white supremacy, white supremacy ideology, can you break down for them what that is, what that means? Mm-hmm. White supremacy, it's, it's always so hard to simplify to, you know, abstract concepts, right? So white supremacy really just speaks to 
the ways whiteness has been normed within institutions. And, and similar to what you were saying, so the ways whiteness has been normed in institutions and the way that it is enforced and reinforced by way of violence, and that violence doesn't have to be physical, to make sure that people are in line with what that ideology is. And it can manifest in a number of ways. Tema Okun, in her two, 2010 book, and then she revised it also in 2020, could be found on, on her website, talks about characteristics of white supremacy culture, so paternalism, so the, the, that it, leadership has to be top down. I tell you what to do, how to do it, and, and there's a lack of transparency. These are just some of the characteristics. Objective on this, the written word is worship. And so for other cultures, all other cultures who value oral traditions, that is not valued. Securing white comfort. And so making sure that we're, uh, you know, like everybody, oh, quiet, quiet. Don't um, shake, rock the boat and different things like that about name, with naming whiteness and, and racism as a problem and, and all those kinds of things. So basically it's like a, it's a, a whole system in operation to maintain the quote unquote supremacy of whiteness and it operates in all of our institutions and societally. And it, it maintains however many years post-slavery we are in America, it maintains the systems that have been in place for so long. Thank you so much, Narissa. What I would add y'all is that the way that I like to think about it is like certainly in this country and even outside of this country, I think this idea of white supremacy is this, like this fundamentally is this idea, this illusion, this myth that white is superior and it is hypervalued and anything and folks are, and, and black and, 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 you know, my friend, my, my friend, Tony Hudson says it in this way. And I always appreciate it. It's like, it's the system of hierarchy that places white on top and hypervalues white and whiteness and white culture, white norms, white thoughts my consciousness, all of that, and devalues Black and Indigenous and then erases the people in between, right? That's the one of the best ways I really appreciate thinking about this concept of like, it's whenever we're talking about this hierarchy that exists, um, that's what I'm talking about when I say white supremacy, right? And like, first again, the details is what, into what, what, what Narissa just like laid out for folks here. Anyway, the, the reason why this feels important is saying that one of the things that like this when you think about whiteness and consciousness, right? It's like the thinking of unconscious white people, right? And so ex one example, right, is this idea of like being colorblind, right? We're all the same, right? And we have similar experiences. Yeah, we're all, we're, we're all humans with different lived backgrounds, but there is a denial and a dismissal, right? Of structural and systemic racism, right? And so part of the ways that this system is one of the tactics that has been in place and in, has been put in intentionally, right? Has been this, has been the use of like different racial oppression and racial suppression tactics where we are, we're having an experience, but if we're all the same and there, there is no racism, right? Then what's the, what's actually happening here? So then we don't even have language to be able to talk about the experience we're having. So anyway, the, the part of the, the gist here around being a gym, right? Is essentially that is the ways in which our Society socializes us, right? From if you think about it, like until until the murder of, of George Floyd, right? And even even after the murder of George Floyd and the rest of the folks who are like being harmed daily, right? The ways in which as a country we've been silent on race, right? Except when like when we're in intra-racial spaces, maybe we'll talk and be a, we'll definitely we're definitely talking about it, right? But in interracially, 
right? There's been a, like a, you know, Dr. Hardy says in this brilliant way where he says, there's been a, a gag order on talking about race, right? And so this piece, this piece that is, when we think about this idea of being a gem, it is this whitewashing that happens that essentially socializes, right, people of color into the, the norms and the thinking of whiteness that results in us then like maintaining and perpetuating it our own selves. And so Dr. Hardy named this, this so gemification is the process through which institutions do that, right? And what they, what the end product is us becoming gems, right? And so that's what Dr. Hardy sort of his work has, his work has like what he did with his work. And he wrote this article and, you know, Nurse, we should probably drop the link to this article so people can have access to these resources. So he wrote this article years ago where he was like, essentially, it's a, like a letter, it's like a letter to like clinicians to like graduate students as they are finishing their clinical work around the rules of like being a gem, right? So he's essentially like not tongue in cheek, in some ways tongue in cheek to be like, do this more, become more of a gem, right? And so that's where he sort of captured a lot of his thinking around, around about uh, being a gem and gemification process. And when I heard him speak about it, I heard him talk about gems. It was the first time that I realized he was talking about me, right? And, and so part of the work that I've done is sort of named the different types of gems that I think exist. Because I think, I think the question is not, I think if you, one of, my, one of our colleagues said, it's not whether or not you are a gem. It's either you are a gem, end up dead, or end up in jail, right? And so historically, right, because of the ways our institutions are created, right, it, the question really hasn't been, are you a gem or not, right? Its question is really about how, how, how much of a gem are you? And so part of the piece, Norris, that you're going to lay out later, right, is this piece around liberation, right? And so it is because it is impossible to be socialized in predominantly white institutions without this institution turning you into a gem, right? Part of what then degemification means, right, is the process through which you start to reclaim your own self, right? Reclaim your own, your own voice, your own authenticity, your own lived identities, your own stories, your own practices, right? But it becomes, it's a way of reclaiming, melanating yourself back, <laughs> if, if, that's, if that's a way of saying it. And so part of my hope um, is to be able to talk a little bit more later on in this episode about the kinds of gems that exist. But I want to just pause because I feel like I've been talking for a minute here. Nerissa, if you can like just to react, get into it and see what's coming up for you. No, I'm just listening. I'm just listening, taking it all in. Yep. Okay. So should I continue then? Yes. Okay. So part of, you know, the way that I kind of try to think about this is that there are different kinds of gems that exist. And on one end of the spectrum, and I think it's really about a, the, the spectrum is really from being an active, like how active you are in terms of like your use and utilization of your gentrification status, right? To being to the, uh, to the passive, right? So that's the, that's the spectrum. And so in the middle, so let me start in the middle and I'll go from one end to the other. So in the middle is what I, um, call the Gao gem. So Gao as in good and obedient gem. So a Gao gem is some, is, remember this is what I was saying, remember if y'all watched, listen to the last um, episode, I'm somebody who, who I would identify like a Gao gem in recovery, okay? And it is a person that, it's a person of color that like white folks are very, very like, very attracted to, right? Because you're, let's use the word palatable to the, to, to, to white folks. 
you're like that good POC person, right? They're like, you're such a team player. You're very, you have very pleasant disposition, right? You're somebody who like smiles through the pain of racism. You're not going to challenge people, right? When, when people make a, like give microaggressions, like you, you're going to just, you know, almost like swallow it in silence, right? But it's this piece around like, just like always maintaining this like positive disposition, right? In the face of, you're the easy person to talk to. You're not like the other folks of color, right? You're not, right? So it's the person that when it's like, is a like POC person who like, if you talk about race, if you're going to talk about race, you're going to do it in a very, you're going to say, do it in ways to very, uh, make sure you're not activating like white people, right? So, and whether that's a conscious process or an unconscious process, but it's like, it's that process is happening internally for you is always around like prioritizing white comfort. And, you know, you do a, a, a lot of work to like downregulate, right? The like um, experiences of like your own, like your, whether it's a rage that's coming up or like your own activation, you're constantly downloading it, down, down, down um, suppressing it. So it's like, essentially the piece is like, it's, it's not that the gal jam, the gal jam is somebody who like, in, you make, it's like the gal jam I don't know how, how to say this, but it's like, it's almost like in my mind, it's like the gal gem is because of your relative privilege to like, uh, because of your, like your relative privilege to true class, a gal gem is like, is, is like in constant proximity to whiteness. And so you subscribe in some ways to whiteness and culture and consciousness without like any awareness of that or any interrogation of that, right? You might judge folks of color who are like, who talk about race explicitly, who will like come forward with like the like rage that's real for them. Like you talk about people who are being too pro-black, right? You see people who are pro-black who are like, you see people as like being on the extreme. If people, there's too much activation, right? And, you know, my, and, and my, my, my fundamental belief is that Gao Gems essentially have not had access to a, a teacher, a mentor or guide that really offers the critical analysis, like the education, the interrogation that really supports them in really seeing race and racism and, and really helping them face their own pain and oppression, right? Because of like what it means to live in a racist, racist society. So a Gao Gem, I think is often educated and is like really educated and like conscious about other forms of marginalization. But when it has to do with the race, it's more of a hands-off kind of approach um, to race. All right, let me pause there, Narissa. What makes sense? What doesn't make sense? And by the way, the other piece I should like just give to context to the, to the audience is like, a lot of the things I'm talking about here is like my own thinking around this based on my own experiences. And I'm starting to put this thing together. So I'm going to name out like the, the kind of subtypes that I think exist. Y'all going to be like, oh, I got some more subtypes. And so if that's the case, please find us, engage with us, email us, like find us on Instagram, on Twitter and like add to it. Because I think, I think this piece is around, my interest here is about giving us language to start to talk about our experiences of what it's been like to like, will operate in predominantly like white institutions and like the impact it's had on us and how it's requiring us to show up in ways that we know aren't, isn't telling the full story of who we really are. I'm listening. I'm just waiting to hear what the other alternatives are. My, my one question that I, I assume that you're going to get to too, because you said we're gems and you're either a gem dead or in jail. Right. And so does in, in your classification of gems, is there, there, is there one that is actively working on their own liberation? Right. So I think, I think the piece is saying because of how 
punitive this system. So that, that quote I was saying is a, a quote my uh, a colleague gave me that I thought captured it. It's saying, if you think about the way that like in our society, historically, this is the paradigm we've certainly been operating in is that, is that because of how punitive this system is to actually, right? To, for folks who are explicit and talk about race and racism, and don't, we're not, we're not mincing words around people who are in fact engaged in their liberation, right? There's a target that gets placed on your back. Mm-hmm. There's a target that gets, so part of the reason why a lot of us folks of color are maintaining our gemification is because we don't know, is it even possible to survive in this system, in a racist society, right? Liberated. So a lot of us are in ambivalence and our, and our maintaining our gemification because of our fears of the consequences that to become degemified, to become liberated, is going to actually cost us success. So I don't, I don't necessarily believe that that's the, those are the only options now. But I'm saying that the way that this our our society has erected it is that is that like if in fact you are those almost like it, as if like those are the three options is is that that's almost like what we see when we are coming up into the school system, right? Mm-hmm. Who aren't doing well? Who right? Uh, so my my. To, is that is that making sense at all? Totally. Um, let's let's also make clear what are the consequences. Like, I mean, and I can also jump in too. But so, what are the consequences of not going along with the programming? You know what I mean. So, what happens when somebody goes against the system? Because you said that put a target on your back. So let's let's talk about that. What does that look like in school? Oh, yeah. what is- let's, let's let you talk about that. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, some of the things. So, you might not get that promotion. You might not be deemed a team player. You might be thought of if you're a black woman as sassy and loud or a black man in stereotypical ways as angry and aggressive or, you know, whatever. If you're another person of color, whatever stereotype goes along with that. And so you don't you're not afforded the same social mobility. So, I mean, and that that has so many different consequences, meaning like if I'm not afforded the same social mobility and I don't get that promotion then I don't get that increase in my raise that might affect me right now. But over 20, 30 years, when it's time for me to retire and I'm like a million dollars less less in what is afforded me in my retirement, like huge consequences. But um, you might lose your job uh, in, in terms of education. You're not rewarded the same way. Like you might not be getting, you know, whatever awards are given within the system. You, you know, again, same things like you might not thought to be, be thought to be a team player also not, might not be thought to be smart because they're standardizing smartness on the ways of, on white centric ways, the ways white people learn and on knowledge that white people have, as opposed to being, you know, pluralistic and inclusive of all the ways that various cultures and peoples learn. What, is, what are some other things that you think of? I feel like you've hit a lot of it. I just, I think they're like economic, there's social consequences to it. There are economic and economical consequences to it. It's just, I mean, I think it is, uh, this system deems you as a problem. You are pathologized and you are not provided access to opportunities that in fact allow for the ones living of one's life and having a, a, the, the kind of livelihood you, you, you deserve. So, so I, I think that this piece that of like, I think to decide that you want to start to, to decide to be liberated, to decide to become gemified, is a, it requires risk. Fundamentally, it requires risk. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think that the reason why it matters, here's why it matters. 
And I don't know, do we even need to, do you think we need to even name why it matters? So. One of the reasons why I think it matters is one of the, I remember, I remember, and the reason why y'all will keep hearing me talk about Dr. Hardy is because he's like been such an influential mentor for me in my development of my identity in becoming degemified, essentially. And I remember him, we were in conversation one time, and I don't know if it was in conversation with me and the group of folks that we, he, he, he used to supervise, or if it was like at a talk. But part of the piece he was talking about is like, um, when you look at the physical, the, when you look at the, like you look at um, health disparities in this country, and you look at the ways in which racism is affecting black and brown people, right? There's the pieces around the ways structurally, the way the system itself and how we are treated in the healthcare system. But if you look at the consequences of like uh, the physical consequences, right? For example, like heart disease, right? The ways in which like our immune system is compromised, right? How much racism is playing a factor in that? And the piece that he was saying is that every time we swallow, Every time we are not actually exhaling the impact of racialized trauma, our body, our body is suffering. It is enduring the, the violence that's being done. And so it's like, and I'll talk about this in one of the types of gems I named. It's like, you know, I did this talk when I, I, when I started sharing this idea and somebody jumped on and asked this question of like, like, you know, everything you're saying here makes a whole lot of sense to me. And I'm noticing that I'm actually socializing my own children, be gems, right? And so the piece is saying we're paying a consequence anyway. Our body is paying the consequence anyway. Like if you look at our mortality rates, we are like, let's not be deluded to think that like, we just playing the, we're just gonna we play by the rules of the system and you're good, right? Nah, our bodies, we are, our bodies is, is keeping, like how is the vessel then the Coco talks about, our bodies keeping the score, right? And so this piece is, this is the piece around like what, what's, why, why, I think this is the reason why I think it feels important is saying that whether or not we want to tell the truth or not, our bodies, are, our bodies are telling the truth about what's happening anyway. What would absolutely. you add? No, absolutely. I'm thinking also, in thinking of the, 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 some of the ways we're excluded from these systems and the impact isolation too, right? So some of the consequences, isolation, you don't have a peer group or a feeling of belonging within that system. That's that, and, and we're, we're hardwired to connect and that disconnection is painful. Also being silenced, right? So, I mean, we'll talk about what, how we self-silence because we've learned that as a means of survival within the system, but you're also silenced, right? So I remember one time I was, I was, emotional about something and I want to speak because I was emotional. So I just dropped it in the chat box on a zoom meeting. And what was said about me after was that I was bringing drama. I didn't even say anything verbally. I put it in the chat box. And what I said, I said, when we talk like this, we maintain the status quo. Right. So I, I played by their games and I spoke intellectually, very left brain. Right. I didn't get emotionally, but I was still characterized in that way. And that, that, that activated, uh, it triggered um, racial trauma for me. I was like done for the day. I would have to go in the room, put the cover over my head and, you know, and really think about why it was I was feeling the way that I was feeling. But um, there's lots of research that even speaks on, I mean, before we even get to environmental racism, but there's lots of research that even speaks on the quality of sleep that black and brown people get. They don't get the same quality of sleep. Black and Latinx people in, um, in particular sleep two hours less per night than white folks, right? And, and, and that's no small thing, right? So that means you're waking up at a cognitive disadvantage the next morning because you're not as alert. You didn't produce as much melatonin and serotonin 
that helps you to regulate your mood and your sleep cycle and your circadian rhythm and all those sorts of things that your that the white counterparts have. Right. So there's so many different consequences. And I agree with you in and I and I had come to a point in my own personal life a year ago where I had to say I'm dying anyway. Right. So I'm gonna have I'm just I'm speaking up against whatever. I'm making everybody uncomfortable. I don't care. Because it's this it's more painful to live that way and be silent than it is for me to to live radically and push against, you know what I mean, push against the the tides and what everyone else is saying or doing and push against white comfort kind of thing too. So I, I, let's hear more about the, the other. Oh, the other kinds, yeah. Um, so I, before I even jump up, you know, Norris, because I, I do think that that's, the, that, that's so, I think it's important for us to say that because what we are, we are, we are clear that what we are inviting and saying, like one of the things that we fundamentally believe, at least I do, and I think, you know, so you would agree to this, is that the only way we get there, right, is really in context of our ability to be vulnerable and be honest about what the truth is around what our experiences have been. And, you know, sometimes part of it is this piece because we are so afraid. And this is one of the, like, when you read, if you, once you read Tim Okuma and Kenneth Jones's work around pervasiveness of fear, the like intentional ways in which fear is a part of white supremacy culture, because it's a way to keep us not accessing our power, especially our collective power, right? And so, I think it's just important for us to name, to name like we are clear around the sense of risk of what liberation requires and the amount of courage. At the end of the day, it is going to require courage and it is going to require, it is going to require a willingness to risk and to risk on not only one's behalf, but on the behalf of the people who are coming after you, right? The ways that when we think about our ancestors and what they did for us, you know? And so, so what, I just want to be, I just want to be explicit that like, we recognize that what we're inviting is not for the faint, is not for the faint of heart. Okay, so let me talk a little bit more about the other kinds of gems that I think exist. So I already talked about the good and obedient gem. That's the Gao gem, the one that doesn't ruffle, no more than ruffle, no feathers is like, right? But it's the piece that's important is like a Gao gem is not aware that they are, that they are a gem at all. There's no awareness about, about, about that. Similarly, in some ways, the, 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 what I call next is the, what I call the cab gem, the quietly anti-Black gem, all right? So this is a POC who has deeply internalized like racism and anti-Blackness and is just navigating that inside of them, right? They are in struggle around, around that. So this POC is like, is implicitly preoccupied with whiteness and anything that enables proximity to whiteness. So they spend lots of time actively, actively trying not to be a POC and disavowing parts of themselves that show up racially and ethnically. So for example, y'all don't like this, people who might um, experience, who might, who might be somebody who, for example, uses bleaching cream, right? That is a person, whether or not you are, they're aware of it, is somebody who is engaging, preoccupied, right? With, with whiteness on a, on a level, whether or not they're conscious of it, right? Now, unlike the, one of the, the, what I would call the like most extreme versions of a gem is a, unlike the surrogate silencer, and that by the way is Dr. Kenneth Hardy's word, the cab is not conscious about their invisible wounds of internalized evaluation and how it is perpetuating internalized, operation, um, internalized oppression of themselves or the POCs. So there's a lack of awareness on their part as well, but the piece that they are aware of and they don't necessarily make, they see it as a, a good thing is they're chasing 
towards whiteness, right? So that's our quietly anti-black gem, AKA the cab, the cab gem. By the way, this piece of feeling like, like by the way, one of the things that we, we should understand around one of the ways that in my opinion, and I don't know if you agree with this Narissa, is that one of the ways that white supremacy has been excellent at keeping us silent, at keeping us like muted, right? Is because we don't have language. And so when you are having an experience of things that you can literally cannot find a language or word to capture, make up your own damn word. And the place who person who gave permission for that, it was, was because when, when you hear somebody like Dr. Kenneth Hardy talk, Dr. Kenneth is like making up words and you're like, Ken, what does that mean? And he'll like explain it, you're like, oh, okay. Like now I have that word, I'm gonna use that word. It makes sense to me, right? So my point is, if you think about the ways words are created, so feel permission as like to talk about your own experiences, make up your own words to capture the experience you're trying to like name. All right, so I've named the cab gym, right? On the most extreme side, right? In terms of like the activeness of like this like oppression is uh, what, I, what, what Ken named as a surrogate silencer. And I don't even know that when he named it, he thought of it as a, as a, as a person on the gem, on the gem spectrum. Cause the spectrum of like, I, I've, I've offered this to him. Anyway, he, so a surrogate silencer in my mind is a type of a gem who is a person who is experiencing internalized racial oppression, white supremacy and anti-blackness so deeply that they actually identify with the white oppressor as an, uh, and they operate as an extension of that white oppressor, right? So this is a person like dependent on the like severity of their internalized oppression. Uh, they may even disidentify as a person of color, right? So they, they're the folks who like, you know, I'm not gonna start to name names given the fact that we put this on, on, a, on a public for, uh, um, forum, but like there are people, the political figures in our, that we are constantly watching on TV, who, who y'all know who I'm talking about. And so actually, can I name names? Like Herschel Walker is an example of a surrogate silencer from my perspective. Oh shit, I'm like, Herschel coming for me. <laughs> right? Um, but right there, y'all, that was an example right there of like not being a gal jam, all right? You know, the other thing is that like, they deny the impact and reality of racism and colonialism, right? And you, these are people like if you, when you hear people who talk about, like when you hear folks of color who are actually actively trying to promote the idea that like racism ended with slavery, you know you're likely dealing with a surrogate silencer. It's a very strong likelihood you're dealing with a surrogate silencer, right? They are people who hold um, rigid beliefs about meritocracy, so they, they deny about um, access to like power and privilege in, in our society is influencing, right? Their own like um, upward mobility, right? So in, the, it's in there, there's a piece around like, just work really hard, right? Society just rewards hard work with a complete disregard for the ways society has actually structured and privileges some people over other people and gives access to some people over other people. So the other piece too that I would say is that the surrogate silencer is usually people who hunger for power and likely as a way of coping, right? And they actively use their power and privilege, right? Whether that's based on their like role, their class, like, or another social identity, but they actively use it to actually oppress POCs, right? As a way of actually, my, my, my belief is that it's a way of actually experiencing superiority. And it's really around coping with their own deep wounds of internalized devaluation, right? So put it like this, if, you don't, if, you're, like, if, you're, not, if you're not sure about what I'm still meaning by the sur surrogate silencer, if, a POC, if POCs were like permitted to join the KKK, surrogate silencers would be part of the KKK, yeah? 
questions, reactions, what you got? Nothing. I'm just listening. Just listening. All right. Then the, the next, the next, if you go and start moving towards the, like on the other end of the, the spectrum, right? Remember I said there's like in the middle is Gao. So you got the Gao gem, right? Then you have the cab gem. Then you got the surrogate silencer, right? Now to the right of the Gao gem is what I call the part-time gem, right? The partial gem. Okay. And this is the POC who is choosing to operate as a gem consciously and intentionally as a survival strategy. Right. So folks who he who, like, it's like the folks who will say explicitly that they recognize the damn near impossibility of being successful in a, in a, a predominant white institution um, or without compromising aspects of themselves temporarily. Right. So these are people who are like, there are, there's a consciousness about what is happening about the system that's at, at play and the moves that they are making. Right. And they make the move intentionally. But the thing is that they are prioritizing your success over your health and everything else, right? And so they, there's a piece around almost like, like you know, folks, the folks of us who are who identify who who might identify folks, folks amongst us who might identify as part-time gems are people who are excellent at code switching, right? And there's a piece around operating with the like, uh, like the cultural schizophrenia, right? Without recognition or, uh, or regard really for the personal consequences of doing so. So it's like this piece around, like there was a while, like for a minute there, like there was all these TikToks that were going around where people were kind of showing like when they go to work, here's my work face, right? And here's my work voice. Really, those are people who are illustrating, I'm a part-time gem, right? So it's an active, so there's also this video, this video, um, Sterling K. Brown did this video after the murder of, of um, George Floyd. And it was a perfect illustration of what it looks like to be a part-time gym, right? And even in that video at the end, he was like, I'm tired, I'm exhausted. But it's the piece that's important about part-time gems is like, it is a strategic move that they are using as a way of being able to maintain access to success, okay? Um, the- I think of, I just want to interrupt and say, I think of people like that who have named their children things that, oh, I don't want their name to sound too ethnic. So they'll name their children Eurocentric sounding names or quote unquote neutral sounding names for that. And yeah. That's right. That's right. And so then let's, let's be clear, right? Part-time gems are, um, we'll talk about their like, their like value of their like, their experience and their culture as folks of color, right? But it's this piece of, it's almost like there's a, it's a, it's a door, it's like two sides of you. And really the, the part of the, that gets shown is based on the context of who you're with, all right? And so, and again, like part of the piece I like, I want to be clear around y'all is like, we, there's not a, a, an ounce of judgment in me, right? Towards any of us, right? Because again, when we are functioning in a society, in a racist society, right? These subtypes that we like, we've become have been our best adaptations to what we're operating within, right? So part of what I'm saying this is like, is, is around all of us in community, Right, really being able to start to like take on these lens of recognizing that like there we the different kinds of gems and all of us needing the same kind of compassion in order for us to like get liberated. We're going to need the same similar kind of support, all of that. But it's just I'm just giving language to what you're what we're witnessing and what we're seeing, right? So that we allows us to start to like look at our own selves, look at our people, and be inviting people into conversation, right? So we can be making the choice about whether or not we want to become degemified. All right. So the last one I have, right, is what I call a, a docs gem, all right, which essentially is a, a docs for, is a docile gem. 
And and really the reason I, I called docs, I hated the word doc, docile, but it's, it feels like the, the piece that I had to like, I had to like come up with a, with a word though. Right. So if somebody has a better, a better like language or better terms, please, I'm open to suggestions. But a, a docs gem is, is pretty much a, somebody who started out as a, uh, a POC that was initially a part-time gem that ultimately collapses into docility. Right. And so this is somebody who is living with the wound of like the assaulted sense of self, um, hopelessness, voicelessness, and they are ultimately exhausted by the cultural schizophrenia, having to switch all the time that they ultimately collapse into a shell of themselves and they don't even bother anymore. They just like, they just, they just done. It's like people like you are with them, but you're like, they don't really feel like they're there anymore. Right. Because they're just so exhausted. Right. Of having to like live with like this two, like having to go back and forth between these two, these two different, different sides. And so they've compromised themselves so much that they are now in essence, a zombie, what I would call it an affectless numb version of themselves. Okay. And so that's what I call my, our docs, our docs gem. And like I said, I'm sure they're like different kinds of subtypes and they're probably, people probably transition the kind of type of gem you are based on the kind of context you're in all of that. But I think this point is saying that is trying to start to give name to the kinds of gems that exist. And by the way, the other piece I should tell you about Marissa is like, I actually created a quiz to help people be able to, to, to kind of rank how degemified or how gemified you are, right? So you take this quiz and it gives you a score and um, it's a very like element, it's still a very elementary level, but it'll be interesting if at some point, if I ever want to share the link with people to like be able to get that and, and hop on that and see, and see how you, how you rank in terms of your gemification status, right? But again, the, our whole conversation here was really about degemification. The whole reason why we're in this conversation is actually about degemification. And the fundamental belief that, that I certainly have and, I, and Marissa has is that we don't have to operate by, we don't have to do this. We don't have to operate by these rules. And really how powerful would it actually be if we were all collectively deciding, right? How would we be actually dismantling white supremacy, right? Collectively, if we were saying we're no longer going to play by these rules anymore. So degemification is a process. It's an intentional process that I believe that we go into right, to start to reclaim ourselves and to become liberated. And so I'm going to turn it over to Narissa to start to lay out and start to talk, talk a little bit about, about specifically what liberation, liberation is. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all, all that you've shared so far. So what is liberation? Liberation, it's a process as well as it's an outcome. So when we speak about liberation, we have an idea of what liberation looks like. It, it looks like somebody who's free to be themselves, to reclaim parts of themselves using language you've already used um, today. But liberation is also a process that takes time. And it's not, as we can tell in the first episode where we, we where both Buki and I shared what our process is like, it's not linear. It is sometimes circular. Sometimes you have to revisit old lessons and different things like that. But really it is about coming into right relationship with our power. Right. And so when we're living in oppressive systems that tells us that we have to be this way or else or else there, there are consequences, what we do is yield some of our power to that system so that we can be able to survive. Again, no judgment, building on what you said earlier, no judgment it has been a means of survival because a lot of times that these these consequences are not it, it, they have been immediate death. Right. As, but, and, and they have been long term death, like death by a thousand cuts. 
you know, death by the excretion of cortisol and other stress hormones in our system that leads to hypertension, you know, all these kinds of things later on development of diabetes and all those kinds of things. So it has been so necessary, but the, what liberation says is no longer, no longer. I'm going to be aligned back with my true essence and my true essence is power. My God self, you know what I mean? Like the, the truth of who I am, I'm not giving away that, that essence of who I am, I'm not giving away anymore, right? I also like to think about the other side of that, right? So I could be yielding to the, the power that is impressed upon me, but I could also be abusing the power that I do have, right? So I'm not talking about abusing that power, I'm talking about being aligned and in right relationship in a, in a restorative place with our own power, right? And so what that looks like is not being complicit with our oppression anymore, right? So they're, they're, So I'm not self-silencing anymore. I'm not allowing things to go on that ha- are harmful to me or the people around me that are oppressive dynamics, that are the exemplification of, of ra- you know, they, they, they promote the same racial hierarchy. I'm going to disrupt and dismantle when I see things that are going on or else I'll leave and exit the system, right? That if, if, if I see this happening and I won't, you know, be a part of it anymore. So liberation really is just this process of, of realignment. And, and that's really just how I think about it. And, it. and it's different for everyone. And what it, what it involves is intentionality. You and I have had these discussions. It involves intentionality. Like you don't liberate accidentally, right? So yes, you could be on a, on a path, but it's until you are intentional and you seek out information, groups, you know, until, and you actively unlearn all the things that you've been, been falsely taught that you're, you know, that you're really truly beginning to liberate and to decolonize, right? So, and again, I, I'm emphasizing that that has to be intersectional as well, right? So it has to be, so my experience is not only influenced by my Blackness, it's also influenced by my gender and really thinking about the ways in which I've been taught to behave because of those things. And so, I mean, that really challenges us to be introspective about all things, including the ways that we were raised, right? So a lot of times, if you look at how we are raised, you, you mentioned how someone in your audience said like, well, I'm raising my children to be gems, right? And so what we do, what we tend to do, unless, we're, un- unless we are enlightened, unless we have had awakening of our consciousness, what we tend to do is raise our children for the environment that we knew because we're thinking that they're gonna be you know, in that same environment. So what you, you even see across races that people who are lower class raise their children to be conformative, right? To, to conform to their environment, to be able to, you know, to, to navigate, right? So if, if, I, if I'm a factory worker, conformity and, you know, following the rules and all those sort of things are necessary for my own survival. And those are the things that I teach my children, shut up when I'm talking, right? Don't answer me back. I don't want to hear your input. You know what I mean? All those kinds of things are reinforcing those concepts. And that is what they exit and go into the world with if we're not challenging them to think critically and different things like that. So does it happen that, you know, you might be from a lower class environment, but raise them with principles that challenge critical thinking. And yes, it does definitely happen, but not without an awareness first. Right. So I can think definitely even about the ways in which my gender has influenced the ways that I've been raised. Right. And so you know, that women are supposed to be, I was not raised to be educated. I was not, I was raised to be a white. Right. So 
from the from the time I was which so makes it, it makes sense that I was married the first time by the time I was 23, 24, right? The everything was about what man will want you if what you know, my value being that. But also my my race had something to do with it too, because you have to be, you know, don't be like this and don't be like that, because you don't want people to think as opposed to just be who you are, right? And just just be comfortable being who you are and let the environment adapt to you, right? I understand that pressure as a parent. I understand that pressure because the rest of the rest of the world is not aligned with my thinking about liberation. And so if I don't teach them, so if I, for, for example, my 16-year-old son, I want him to be in touch with his emotions, right? And so I realize that I am not his only socializing influence. He has the world in his peer group. So it's been hard to, you know, you see, I saw a marked difference through entering junior high and on the other side of soon to graduate high school of, of who he is and how he's able to express his emotions as a black boy. And, you know, so I'm, I'm saying this to say, like, I, I've wanted him to be able to say, I feel sad or I feel whatever. But because of, you know, societal media, his peer group, he, he's not able to say that. So we were away last week and my husband sent him a text and was like, I miss you and Nuri can't wait to see you. And he said, I bet you do. We mean, I bet you do. I miss you too. Like that's an appropriate reciprocal kind of a response, right? But he's grown up in a system where as a black boy, it is not okay for him to speak in emotional terms, right? And then at the same time, do I want to raise him in such a way? And I do. Do I, you know, there are consequences if I raise him being attuned to his emotion and every, everybody outside of like, oh, he's a simp, like, oh, he's, you know, he's, he's, he's weak or whatever terms we use to call people who, men who are too emotional or different things like that. So really, if I am to step back and try to summarize all that I'm saying is, is it, it's resisting the social pressures of conformity to behave according to systems of domination, right? And that is white supremacy, male supremacy, you know, hetero supremacy, all those kinds of things. I don't know if I made that succinct. I feel like I made that longer than I've ever made it in life. But <laughs> that to me is what um, liberation is. I wish we were like on Facebook, one of those like Facebook live, those like live conversations. Um, so that like uh, when I asked the question that no audience here is able to respond to, it was like, nobody's confused by what you're saying. You are <laughs> freaking clear. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. And one of the things that you were saying, Norris, that you like, it's like this piece around like to like a little vision about being alignment with with oneself and in one's power. It's like the piece is there's a value. There's a valuation of oneself, one's like it, there's a piece around that. that like I wonder if you would speak to around like in order for one to be aligned, like aligned with oneself and one power inherently speaks to an underlying value for self. Mm-hmm. About that, how does that how do you think of that and has to do with yeah, I think that that's a necessary component, right? So to be aligned with your power, you have to know that you have power, that you are powerful, right? And so I, I just, I just, I see it as a necessary component, right? I'm thinking now I'm going in a little bit direction, but I'm thinking about what that looked like for me. So in last episode, I talked about my liberation journey and it has been like a 20 year kind of journey that has been qualitatively different depending on even where I am and my own chronological age development, right? But I I keep thinking as we're having this conversation and as I listen to you on gemification about who I was two years ago in the aftermath, because that was a very pivotal experience for a lot of us, right? 
And so I remember literally two years ago this time, it was June, the chair of my department, so I was full-time faculty at the time, was a Black woman. And she had, you know, scheduled a meeting for all of us to be able to talk about these things and said, like, you know, we're talking about what we're going to do about race for the students. What about us? Are there race issues that we need to talk about us? Wasn't very many Black people in, you know, and in the audience. And I'm somebody that who is by nature and reserved, right? So it, it is always shocking for people to hear that you're a professor and you're reserved. Like, we mean? <laughs> I'm shy, I've always been shy. And now it, it's more that I'm slow to warm up than it is that I'm shy, but I am still a little shy. And so I'm, I self-silence in those settings. Power has done that because I'm mostly in rooms with white people. And, and it's mostly the white men who, you know, power influences the comfort level with which you have speaking up and different things like that. But no one said anything. And I, this was not going to be a moment I was going to let pass. And I started speaking. And that really was the beginning of my most radical part of my liberation process. And what I said was, you know, I left an HBCU or at least a predominantly Black institution. And I came here because you, they're celebrities where I was, right? They're celebrities in the field. And I thought, you know, if I could just touch the hem of their garment, I could learn so much. I can be a better psychologist, researcher, scholar, and different things like that. And I said, but I'm in the elevator with y'all. And I, I've had to introduce myself to some of you like five times, right? Oh, I didn't recognize you. Your hair is so different. Or, you know, it wasn't even about that. It's just like, or I've, I've said hi in the elevator and people haven't even responded back. Right. And so and I told them, I said, you know, basically you make me like these circumstances have made me even question my, my own self and my own value. And I said, you know, and whether or not I want to stay here, fast forward two years later, I left. I was gone a year ago. But point of the story is that act no longer self-silencing and no longer going with the current has radically changed me. And has radically caused me to question any circumstance in which I'm being complicit with my own oppression. There's many stories that I could share throughout the time that we'll be together that I've, that I've, I've shared with you, Buki, times where I'll, I'll disrupt like somebody's trying to do something and say something that is, you're only saying this because you think I'm less than because I'm a Black woman or because I'm a Black person. Let me stop you right now because this is what's not going to happen. And I don't care if you choose not to pay me. You know what I mean? And that is what I'm referring to. So I'm, I'm bringing it back because it might seem like a, a meandering here. But that's what I'm referring to when I think about process. That every day you have the opportunity to enact your liberation, or if I use your language, to gemify Because it is a process. We've so learned and so ingrained, you know, these, the, the doctrination, the larger social doctrination. And then some of the things we haven't visited. We haven't visited in our thoughts. So for example, I was watching a documentary yesterday. And even though I, for a long time, have not identified as a Christian, they were talking about, and this conversation has come up for me a lot within the last two or three months. They were talking about the Yoruba tradition and other African spiritual systems and talking about animal sacrifice, right? I haven't thought about those things. So I haven't had the opportunity to decolonize my mind and liberate my thinking about those things. Because the first thing that comes up, oh, that's so barbaric, right? Like that wasn't a conscious thought, but that was a physi physical, visceral kind of reaction in my body. Like I'm never doing that. Like if that's the, that's what it takes for me to get there, not happening. You know what I mean? 
but like I said, there's, there's so much for us to, to unlearn, right? And so that starts from the ways in which we've been socialized by our families of origin, all the way through our education and our professional organizations and how they have enforced, enforced these behavioral, emotional, you know, mandates for us to be able to fit in a system that was never made for us. Thank you so much for that. I feel like you said a couple of things I wanted to be like, wait, can you say that again and say it slowly so that people can write it down? Can you clarify? Actually, actually, one of them is this, is Narissa, when you, I feel like you have a very precise way of defining liberation and, and you are clear, the piece that you are is about an alignment with, with one's own power. Is that right? That the, the piece that it's, it's about is not like, just like, you know, like when I talk about degenerification, right? I'm talking about like, the, like, I'm not talking explicitly about power. I'm talking about like like getting authentic, like being able to like get into like authenticity with one's own self, but you are actually putting it and locating it in power. Can you tell us a little bit more about like how come how come power is the thing that it feels important for you to locate liberation? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I've ever thought of it that way. So one of the things, how come I've looked? Because when we're talking about hierarchies, racial hierarchies we're talking about power and we're talking about power being assumed up top and being taken away from those at the lower part of the lower end of the the hierarchy. Right. And so our power has been taken away from us and that influences the degree to which we're able to be free. Right. And so another caveat here is that there are alternative ways of being, meaning we don't have to be in systems that are hierarchical. We can be in systems that, that where there is shared power, right? So power with, as opposed to power over. Power systems where there are power over, these hierarchical systems, racial hierarchies, are systems that are abusive, right? And take away one's agency, right? And so I locate this conversation in power because I'm speaking about power. I'm speaking about true alignment with ourselves, our souls, our being, like what we came here to do from a spiritual perspective. And it is, you know, I think these social things are impediments or, or things that prevent us or slow us down from really actualizing, from really self-actualizing and being our best and most powerful selves. So I, all of this is about power, you know what I mean? So I can't see it any other way than through the lens of power. And how I came to this definition It was really, I mean, I was preparing a talk really, and it was a bit of, it was like a download, right? And so like something you knew without knowing you knew, and it just came so clearly at the time. And I had been thinking, I heard Fania Davis speak about restorative justice, right? And so Fania Davis said that restorative justice is about people coming into right relationship with those that they've harmed, right? And so in thinking about oppression, and thinking about oppression being harm and justice being the answer, then restoration and justice internalized has to be about being in right relationship with ourselves and with our own power. And that's how, that's where that comes from for me. Thank you. I feel like this is an episode I wanna go back and watch over and over and over again, just to be able to capture some of the things that you you just highlighted right there. And I'm just, I'm just grateful for the different, like this is not a, like a live conversation actually that people can actually like be like, wait. And this is what I was saying to y'all. I mean, if y'all remember when I introduced and I was saying how my experience of how Narissa talks and the way her mind works is like, 
she's teaching without even necessarily thinking she's teaching, right? You're just, just the way that you are giving, you give information, the way you, you package it, the way you write. It's like this piece of like, wait, what? And I want to go back and I want to, because it's like, there's, it's layered. There's, it's, it's layered, right? And I get, I'm going to get one part of it now and I'm going to listen to that again and then get it, I get another part of it later again. It's almost like the, the way you sometimes talk, and I don't know about your, but your, your, your spirit is so powerful that it gives information multi-layered and my mind can hear one part of it now. And when I listen later, I can hear the other additional like important parts as well. I got to listen again. You see what I'm saying? So, so anyway, I just really appreciate the ways that you've summarized, summarized that for us. And I think that's part of what, honestly, that's been part of what's been exciting to me about our conversation, right? Because when I'm thinking about degemification, I'm thinking about just one, about getting into authenticity with oneself, right? But this fact that you then located and said, no, it's about power and it's about, about our ability to utilize our power to be dismantling power structures that don't serve us, right? And the ways that like we're using it against our own selves internally, right? This is a, it starts to be a way that we operationalize and like the value of authenticity of oneself, you know? Thank you. Yeah, this is, I mean, I was, I was feeling like that when you were talking about gentrification too. This is definitely a rich, 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 rich conversation. Part of the thing, and, you know, I think, well, the, is in, as you've, as you've thought about liberation, Narissa, at this point, do you feel like you've, I don't know if this is right, well, like codified it enough to be like, here are the phases or here are the, like, here's the pro, like when we, you know, part of what our hope is, is to talk to talk more a little bit about, about what we believe about the process of what it looks like to actually like in concrete ways so that our audience members are like actually hear practical strategies, right? And our hope is to be able to bring different guests on that are like really telling you their own stories and all of that. One of the the questions that's sort of coming up for me as I'm just listening to you today is like, can you speak to if in fact, like in terms of like phases or stages, have you thought about that? And like, tell us what what you've already come to around that. I actually have it written down in a book, but I forgot. I think of it as like a, I'm sure there are like, I think of like three phases, but I, there are subparts to each of the phases. And I'm not, I'm not sure if I'm going to remember this as I wrote it, but I definitely think that there has to be similar to the Negrescence model by Bill Cross of racial, of black identity development. It has to be some sort of like encounter experience where you have this increased awareness and it's like, whoa, I'm seeing things like I've never seen it before. Right. And then this discomfort with where you are, a a disequilibrium between where you are and where you wanna be in terms of your knowledge and actualization of liberation and or degemification. And then it has to be, there's an intentional working towards. And then that intentional working towards involves an individual component as well as a collective component. So individually, I have to be actively seeking information to challenge and to undo and unlearn all the things that I've been learning. And collectively, I also have to get in community with people who are doing that learning and who support that so that, it, you know, when we have that support, we can replicate it. You know what I mean? Like meaning replicate it in our own lives, practice it, be more liberated in different things like that, strengthen our experience, lived experience and practice of it, but also people who are further on the path to, to pour into us. And then those who we're pouring into too, that's, but it, but I know that it involves community. I'm pretty sure that I'm missing some things from what I worked out, what I wrote down, but I think of it in those kinds of ways. And I don't think of it as something that has a final end. 
I think of it as something that is ongoing and that involves, continually involves acquisition of knowledge of yourself, like your, your own, if we're talking about Black liberation or, you know, a person of color, what have you. It involves also coming back home to yourself, right? So what is what are my ethnic cultural values? What are my, you know, different things? I've been thinking a lot. This I've been thinking a lot recently, and it's something I wasn't conscious of until the last couple months or a year. My great grandmothers on my father's side, his both his grandmothers, paternal and maternal, were very instrumental. So African traditional religion was banned in Trinidad, right? They were instrumental in terms of their own spirituality and being leaders in bringing it back into Trinidad and practicing it in a very revolutionary way and about how that lives in me. And I have to come back to that knowledge and live that knowledge. And I, I mean, I find myself being drawn to West African. I mean, granted, I definitely have Nigerian and Ghanaian roots, mostly Nigerian. So it makes sense that I'm gravitating to West African um, traditions as well. But I forget where I was even going with this, but coming back home to, to self. And when I say self, I also mean ancestry, not just this individual, because we're, you know, we, our sense of self and identity is not the same as the Western self of sense and identity, which is just the singular, but I'm, I'm speaking about the collective. Thank you for that. It's, you know, I don't know that people know this is that, you know, other than Larissa and I knowing that we were like those body of work that we're like involved in where there's lots of overlap and similarity and we were like, just our spirit and our vibe, we're like, let's just do this thing, right? It's interesting. The reason I asked that question is because um, in my thinking, I had laid out that there are four, four, three phases to the gentrification or four phases. One is awakening, second is preparation, third is taking steps and fourth I call maintenance and it requires tools. And how you just essentially broke it down is essentially uh, similar to exactly what I, so it's just interesting, this piece around like thinking about ancestral wisdom and almost like, and I'm sure there are other folks who are listening to this or other like scholars that probably even exist that we're not even necessarily like have tapped into yet who've written about, you know what I'm saying? So it's just interesting. Like, it's like, it's because that's, that's interesting. Like, you know how there's that saying that says there's no, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like the, how, like we, the ideas, the like, but my, the point I'm saying is like, this, this information is, if you think about it from like an, like from like a spiritual level, right, is like it's it's going to be birth. And the question of which which one of the messengers, right, or which messengers decide to collaborate together to bring them the bring it forward. So it's just remembering, oh, remembering, remembering. Exactly, remembering. It's happening right here. So it's just it was just cool to be able to hear you like lay that out and be like, oh my god, that's exactly what I got right now here, you know. So. I just, I, I geek out a little bit when things, when moments like that happen where we're like, it's happening live in the room, in the <laughs> you know, what else we got for today? I think that's it. I think that's it. We've given, we, we both, we, we have a lot to chew on to digest as well as I think the rest of you do. So we're going to wrap it up for today. Thank you all for listening and we look forward to the next time. Take care y'all. Thanks for listening. If you've loved what we've had to say, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Dr. Narissa, and you can find me on IG at Dr. Narissa Williams. And I'm Dr. Buki. You can find me on IG at the official Dr. Buki. You can also stay abreast of our latest offerings at our website, RadicalRemembering.com. <laughs>